Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up with Chris Reed, CEO of Neo Metals, earlier today, and some of his team joined him too. We talk about the lithium battery recycling project and also the vanadium recovery project. Uh, they put out some numbers recently, which has helped us to build a picture of what the future looks like. We also talk about their AIM listing uh, and green credentials in Europe. If you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation, do go to cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where we also have detailed company reports and analysis. We've got commentary from experts from around the world on a lot of companies and commodities, including the EV thematic. We've got training courses on there and we do summaries of all the interviews that we do to save you some time because we know you are busy. Uh, but most importantly of all, we've got a wonderful thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe, friendly environment, free from all that judgment, trolling and abuse you see elsewhere. Uh, there is a bit of a waiting list, but it's well worth the wait, but do go and join them and sign up at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Gentlemen, how are we? Very well, thank you, Matt. How are you? Not, not too bad at all. Not too bad at all. I saw a few headlines. I thought we'd better um, get in touch. Things look, look like they're starting to move. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. Um, we, we should uh, probably do that, Chris. Let's do a one-minute summary for people new to the story because a few people are uh, getting on board the EV train um, of which you uh, belong to. So if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Neo Metals is an ASX-listed innovative project developer. So we've got four co core projects. The common thread is uh, what we believe to be unparalleled exposure to commodities that are most positively impacted by the EV and energy storage megatrend. So, you know, we've got a lithium battery recycling project. We're building a demonstration plant in Germany as we speak. We've got a high-grade vanadium slag project up in Scandinavia where we're looking to recover high-purity vanadium for battery use from the slags. Uh, and we've got a number of other residual sort of upstream mining assets in Australia. Yeah, okay. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Um, I think this doesn't necessarily need to be a long one. I just wanted an update as to, you know, uh, where you're at on a couple of projects. Actually, I want to focus on the uh, lithium and the vanadium, if you don't mind. But first of all, question. You and your old man have been selling shares. Why? Uh, well, we sold a parcel of shares very well. We did it in a uh, special crossing to a leading Australian institution last Friday. Uh, I bought a new house and have to settle on it this week. Uh, and my father turned 75 in March and he'd like to plan his retirement. So we uh, made sure that we had all of our announcements out. Uh, we had significant interest from both domestic and foreign institutions for lines of stock uh, because, you know, institutions want to, you know, they like the story and they, they're looking to get in. We haven't raised money since 2013. Uh, we still remain collectively the largest uh, shareholders in the company. Okay. And you're listing on AIM. Do you think that was um, wise to be selling now? Or do you think it's going to affect your ability to... Um you know, kick off in the in the UK market? Look, I wouldn't have thought so. We're doing a compliance listing on AIM and certainly uh, my wife raised the issue, you know, having to sell the shares uh, for the company that you love, founded and have worked for the last 20 years for, you know, they, if they go to uh, $2, you're going to be upset with me. And I said, well, you know, to be fair, uh, we're all living in the house. Uh, you do work for the benefit of your family. So uh, I've built a bridge and got over it. Okay. Right. And do you think markets understood that? 
Well, the stock uh, the stock went up and finished the day at the same price that you know it it, it started. Uh, so that, you know there was another special crossing by someone that we don't know who it was for about 1.7 million shares after market at, at, at the same price, 54 and a half. The price ended up at 57 yesterday and it's down to 53 today. So, you know, I think the markets go up, go down, but, uh, you know, I don't, I haven't had any negative feedback from uh, any of our other institutional shareholders. Okay. And what's the timing on the uh, AIM listing? So the AIM listing, I expect that it'll be after the uh, the guys guys in London have had a, a well-deserved summer break. So at this stage, I would be thinking it's an end of September, October proposition. Okay, okay. So not, not rushing into it. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the projects that I, I wanted an update on. And if you don't mind, let's start with the lithium recycling um, project. Obviously, you've, you've got the demo plant going on there. But so what, what's the latest from Primobius? Yeah, so, you know, we let out the operating and capital cost estimates to a class four level, so plus or minus 25%. So that's that's twice as accurate as the previous scoping study numbers that we put into the market. Um, you know, we've located the plant, relocated the plant from the original study, which was in Quinana, Western Australia, uh, into Germany. Um, in the intervening period, we've completed a year-long pilot plant, and that formed the basis for all the estimates. Um, and, you know, so the operating costs, we were very, very happy with how the operating costs. So despite those massive movements and also a change uh, in the scope to include buildings and infrastructure, which previously would have been on site in Australia, um, the operating costs only moved by 4%. And, and so when you, when you account for the certainty underpinning those numbers, you've gone from plus or minus 50 to plus or minus 25, and you've gone from it being based on laboratory scale to being based on an actual pilot. So we have a very, very high, uh, conf- high confidence in those numbers, and the capital costs naturally went up because we've relocated a larger scope, there's more equipment, uh, in there, and we've changed the construction site from from Australia to Germany, and uh, you know it's clearly an improvement in the quality. Right, I, I get the, the the cost going up because the the scale of the the um, plant is, is has increased. But how this is a new process for people to understand? For, for a lot of your shareholders who kind of maybe bought in a, a while ago, this was a mining company. You've migrated into you know a, a project development company. Like so, some of the terminology is is changing. Some of the processes are changing. So, how do you yeah. start to get more certainty? Because plus or minus twenty five feels it's getting close to you know certainty, but. How do you yep. get? How do you get to plus or minus ten? I mean, what, what's the process you're about to go through? Oh, certainly for the battery recycling project, we're building a demonstration plant. So you know that's a multi-million euro investment by both SMS Group and Nia Metals. We're constructing that at SMS's um, manufacturing headquarters at Hilkenbach in Germany. Uh, so that'll be commissioned uh, this quarter, and the trials will be complete. The following quarter and so we will then come out with the level of accuracy so a class three so you're getting down to the plus 10 15 percent uh and we envisage having those into the market in the december quarter 
right. uh, of this year and then looking to make an FID in the March quarter of 2022. So you've gone from class four so, to class three. Presumably there's a class two and a class one. What do they look like? Well, the class the class two is the equivalent of front-end engineering and design. So that's after you've made your engin- engineering or your investment decision uh, and, you know, you, you're actually going to, um, you know, prepare the tender documents for class one, which is the execution. You know, class one is your your EPC or lump sum turnkey contract. So it's it's five, four, three, two, one. And so in mining parlance, you would have scoping study and that would be pretty much based on inferred resources. And then you would have a pre-feasibility study based on indicated and inferred and you would have a bankable feasibility that would have reserves as opposed to resources. And then you would go into, you know, or they call it a fee- bankable feasibility or definitive feasibility in the mining industry. And then you go into the front end engineering and design phase. We, go, we all go through at the same place. I think, you know, the difference in this business is that we get access to graphite, lithium, nickel and cobalt, which are four of the six most positively impacted metals uh, without having to develop a mine. So no carbon attached to that all high purity because they're already in a battery and we've just developed a process where we can extract those products out separately and reinsert them back into the battery supply chain. Okay, so let's talk, let's talk about um, the kind of primobius relationship then. Again, it's going over a little bit of old ground for people who have been listening to your interviews, but again, for people new to it, is so primobius is a, is a joint venture between yourselves and SMS, one of uh, Germany's largest engineering groups. But and you, you're in the kind of build phase, right? And you're optimizing. We get that. But at the end of this thing, once you start recovering these minerals, your metals, you're going to have to sell them, right? So how does that process work? You know, what are you putting in place now? What are the conversations that are happening now to ensure that you not only can produce these things, and but they don't sit around? You're making money. Where does that bit come in? Sure, I can I can defer you down to uh, our GM of uh, IR and commercial, Jeremy, who, who has his hands on the wheels uh, with a couple of others, a couple of us. So, Jeremy, do you want to take over that question? Yeah, sure. Look, in terms of that process, the demo facility, Matt, is sitting there for two reasons. One is to make sure that we can scale this up and we tick that box it's safe. It works to our satisfaction, but the other part's all commercial. So. The feed to run our demonstration trial has all been donated from industry. We've got uh, EV batteries from automotive. We've got stationary energy storage from Itoshu in Japan. And essentially, we run two trials during the demo and the output. So the materials that we extract, both the low value ones, which is your plastics, your steel casings, your aluminium and your copper foils, and the high purity chemicals out of the refinery, They've all got homes. They're all going to potential end users as part of an evaluation process towards offtake. So essentially, you're speaking to them now. You're allowing them to come and see the showcase demonstration. You're letting them touch and feel the products and to determine with their supply chain if they stack up to specification. Ultimately, come the end of the year and certainly before that FID, Chris mentioned, March of next year, we have all those ducks in a row. So we have the feed lined up and we have the off takers, the people that are going to buy the chemicals and the plastics and everything else. 
and then we make an investment decision with T's crossed, I's dotted. Okay, so give me an idea of the scale here. So on, on this, we're talking about lithium battery recycling here. So it's very yeah. uh, topical at the moment, um, but you, you're here to make money. So what's the scale of the feed that's coming through? You know, and what's the, what's the size of the, the, the market that you hope the to product? supply into? Yeah. yeah, so in terms of the studies, we've done the studies on initially on 50 tonnes a day, and that's designed to accept the volume of production scrap out of a gigafactory, which is the normal standard sort of size. There's approximately 20 going into Europe at the moment, um, and they're in various stages of build. So the current market is about 75 to, say, 80,000 tonnes in Europe, but growing fantastically. Um, and the incumbent installed capacity is about 35 to 40. So our plant, 50 tonnes a day, is the equivalent of 20,000 tonnes per annum. So if we put in 20,000 tonnes per annum of battery, uh, of NMC, you know, batteries from an electric vehicle or a stationary energy storage battery, we'll produce 10,000 tonnes of nickel sulphate. We've already beat the Chinese national spec, which is also the benchmark spec on the LME. We produce, this is if we've got an 811 sort of cathode, you know, NMC 811 is the cathode going in, um, about 1,370 tonnes of cobalt sulphate uh, and lithium sulphate that we'll end up making into hydroxide, probably about 2,500 tonnes of, of, of lithium as hydroxide preferably. Right, which is great. So that's the kind of output. So you're starting to provide numbers into the market that we can start to value this company. Or certainly as analysts, we can start to value this company and maybe, maybe some sophisticated retail investors can too, uh, which, is, which is great. Yeah. But one of the other things we would look for, you know, again, in, in mining parlance, uh, you would say, right, um, we need what, what contracts have got in place? Because I want you kind of want certainty over this feed coming oh, into you, right? What's the length of those? Absolutely. What's the scale of that, right? So the, the the whole strategy is about securing feed. So how do I how do I attract feed? So from the very genesis of the current flow sheet, it was to develop the most environmentally sustainable flow sheet. So you know, one as Jeremy said, safe multiple safety systems and redundancies built in. And then we've got, obviously, because we're doing this to make a profit, high recoveries, high purities. And like I said, we've already passed the Chinese national spec for nickel and cobalt sulfates, which are about 80 odd percent of our revenue stream. And the emissions, we have no emissions into the atmosphere. We're not emitting anything into, you know, water-wise. And our tailings product is an ammonium sulfate or, or a fertilizer. So that solves some of the legislative requirements for the cell makers and cathode makers in these new European battery regulations. But, you know, the prime driver uh, is the cost. And so we're confident we put in our costs at 1560 US a ton. If we're looking, you know, if we're able to get, you know, your cell phone batteries and stuff like that, there's about, 11,000 bucks of recoverable material in that. Um, if you go down to NMC 811 with the minimum amount of cobalt in it, we recover about $5,600 ton, $5, per tonne of feed and it costs us 1560 
So, you know, there's the tools in there to, to, to prepare, you know, models. And it's very, very robust. And like I said before, the configuration is 20,000 tonne. That meets the production scrap at steady state of a gigafactory. But the real game is to get the 90% that leave the cell manufacturer and end up in a car. And so whilst a lot of our competitors model in disposal fees, we don't have that in any of our modelling. Will we get paid for it when we start? Sure. But for us, it's about scaling up. And we're also st studying a 200,000 tonne plant, which is designed to take those 90% of batteries at the end of their useful life in eight to 10 years, right? And so we will actually share the economics. So we will, having the lowest cost, the most environmentally friendly and the lowest, you know, amongst the lowest carbon footprint, certainly, you know, well in excess of, um, whatever's required, you know, existing pyramid recyclers take out, you know, they, they've got half the carbon footprint of new material from minerals. We're looking to strip out more than 90% of the carbon. And, and that's important. So one, we can meet all of their legislative requirements, their aspirational goals to get down to zero carbon or as close to zero carbon as they can. And we'll make the most money based on the numbers that we can see and we can share that with them. And so we want to enter into a symbiotic relationship with the car manufacturers to process the end of life. And hence why you get SMS. I mean, SMS are a 150-year-old German engineering company, one of the largest builders of metallurgical processing plants uh, in Europe. And so they've got 14,500 employees in 95 sites around the world. They will build whatever the cell makers and the car makers need. And so, you know, we're to the extent that we get long-term supply contracts, you know, we, we will make it very mutually rewarding to do business with us. Okay, so I want to come back to the kind of the, the, the green thematic because it, it, there's a real big move from from funds and, and investors of all types um, globally. But ju just, just on the numbers that you're feeding in, and it's a question that's been sent in on multiple occasions, is it, with the recovery process on these lithium batteries, is the because you've, you've talked about um, high purity, high recovery, and therefore high margin. So you're saying that there's no kind of um, degradation of the inherent material that you're recovering. So there's going to be no discount applied by the market to um, the, the the high purity um, materials that you're selling into the marketplace. There's no deleterious matter that you can't remove that needs to be removed elsewhere, and therefore adds cost to it. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you're producing cathode spec right. sulfates. So that's the right. So you've, you've dissolved them just like you've dissolved a, a mineral concentrate, except, you know, we don't have anywhere near the impurities because they were, they were battery grade when they went in. And so we're extracting them straight out at battery grade and they've been, you know, disassociated and, and recovered and regenerated. So... Absolutely not. The yeah. only reason I ask, Chris, is because you know, people listening in, they want to know that you've got certainty about the sale price. And then I guess with the contracts or long-term contracts uh, for the feed, you've got certainty of the cost going uh, going in there as well. So Yeah, look, I think marketing risk, minimal, right? Because you've got the Umicore and Glencore guys that are taking the batteries, putting them in a pyro process, um, you know, incinerating... Uh, Parts of it, graphite, plastics, electrolyte, 
recovering mixed base metals in a dirty little button, you know, crushing that up and putting it through a hydromet circuit at nowhere the nowhere near the feed purities that we've got, and yet they go into the battery supply chain. So you know, we've got we've got no reason to believe that we should expect a discount. And you know, it's fortunate us that you know nickel sulfate trades at a premium to the LME nickel. Cobalt sulfate trades at a discount to LME nickel because predominantly it comes out of the DRC in a chemical form, like a, a mixed hydroxide product. So, you know, we are – and, and look, even lithium, they've now got an LME lithium concentrate uh, contract. So we're fortunate in that, you know, our end products, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, lithium hydroxide or carbonate, have LME prices that you can actually put in price protection. So you don't find a lot of, of you know, new businesses in recycling where you have that level of certainty that you can enter into price protection with forwards or options or whatever. Okay, so that's certainty around the process. Let's talk about certainty around competition, okay, because you've got a hydrometallurgical process. You've referenced uh, yep. pyrometallurgy as part of the process. So there is competition out there. It comes down to a question of, you know, what are the barriers for either new entrants or your ability to um, outcompete, um, outperform existing uh, competition. So you've, you've given us some clues in terms of recovery process there, but I, I suspect it's going to come down to the the green component, which I think you know Jeremy's alluded to. It's is that more and more important in these sorts of recycling projects in terms of your ability to sell, your ability to stand out. Well, I think you know one of our unique. Uh, selling propositions is, you know, one, the flow sheet, and we have, you know, IP associated with that. And it has a number of qualitative uh, aspects that we've just talked about. And you've got a partner that can actually deliver uh, plants of the highest quality that uh, that will work, right? And it's not the same as as having startups that have been born out of, government-funded research laboratories who need to who need to scale up, um, and and not only the scale up, the actual delivery risk and fabrication and experience in building plants and operating plants of this nature. And to be perfectly honest, you know, it's come out of the base metal industry, solvent extraction that was invented at Mount Isa in Queensland. Right, so we've taken an existing mining technology in a new field. You know, the existing guys were using pyrometallurgy because we've been smelting base metal concentrates since the Roman times, right? At obviously different scale, um, and and then you've had some others, you know, to try to do a, an easy mixed hydroxide product, a la the HPL plants. Right. And, and, you know, we've just, we've had, we had a look at it. We thought, well, what do they actually need? They will need the manufacturing process for these cathodes. One, there's probably in, if NMC and, and, and high nickel NMCs, less cobalt, lithium hydroxide is, is your preferred starting point. Um, and the nickel and cobalt sulfate have, have come out just on solvent extraction alone. Uh, exceeding the Chinese national spec, right, which would be two-thirds of the bloody demand in the global market. Um, but we'll put iron exchange columns in the demo plant and we'll, we'll, we'll aim to make, you know, uh, the Asumitomo or Nareel spec product. 
So we want to get the most for it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, you do. But I'm trying to work out what the other players in the space need to do. So the OEMs or the gigafactories, which you know have these you know dud batteries or end of life batteries, selling to you, Chris. Um, as long as they're getting the price they want, they could care less whether it goes to pyrometallurgical process or hydrometallurgical process. And again, like oh, I think. The end user. Yeah, I think the carbon footprint. I think the carbon footprint and the efficiency will trip them up once the battery alliance. Uh, sorry, the new European battery regulations come into effect. In in fact, you know, with with another one of our projects, it, it'll actually the vanadium project that Darren runs. It, it'll have a negative carbon footprint, right? And and it's most likely that we'll be able to attract a premium for that. And so I fully expect that they're just like, you know, we have a look at the lithium market. There's industrial grade, technical grade, battery grade, three different prices. And and for, you know, the, the nickels, you have to report your carbon footprint. So once upon a time when we had internal combustion engines as, as the base load and the future forever, um, it was all driven by efficiency. We've got to use less fuel. Right? We have to put stickers on the cars that show the fuel consumption. We'll judge how good the cars are going forward over a period of time by the declining amount of fuel that they use per kilometre. Now we're going to have to put in CO2 stickers. Your carbon footprint is, you know, if you've got an internal, if you've got an electric car, it's twice the carbon footprint of an internal combustion engine. You know, and that's because of the battery. So the only way you can pull that down is, is to take the carbon out of the battery chain. And the best way to do that is recycle. But look, even if you look at the volume, if we recycled every battery in Europe in 2030 that was available, it would still only provide 10% of what is required to stick in the front end of Europe's gigafactories. So it's not a panacea for this decade, but it's, you know, it's really a game for 2040 and 2050. We're just getting into it early and hard. So, okay, but which is where I wanted to get to, because the decision-making process needs to be influenced by things like the battery alliance and so forth, and you know, reducing uh, CO2 emissions and carbon footprints is, is becoming a big part of the narrative. So have you just become a real thorn in the side for pyrometallurgical um, recycling companies? Are you going to be uh, cannibalizing their, um, their current um, projects, their revenues? Is that what you're saying? No, I think, you know, they'll innovate and we've, we've, the challenge is to scale. If you have a look at the impact of gigafactories on the existing raw materials production, we're going to have to, you know, quadruple or, you know, or quintuple production by 2030. You know, the, 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 the amount of gigafactories that they're producing, you know, that they're building now and the transition is, it's just happened. Right, it is happening. It's going to be fantastic demand pool. There's going to be increasing volumes of batteries. You know, prices will be up. There'll be plenty of room for everyone. I mean, okay, so you're sitting there. Are you going to bastardize Glencore and, and Umicore? What well, their capacities would be less than ten thousand tons in Europe. I mean, you know, I, I think if you if you have a look at the biggest threat, the biggest threat would be actually getting the mineral products in the front end. Because even if you recycle, it's only take care, it only takes care of 10% of, of what you need. These guys would be scared. I mean, we saw the, the 
I think one of the UK papers had a an article that the UK should start stockpiling lithium, cobalt, and nickel now to protect the you know security of the of the um, UK car makers because you won't be able to make batteries unless you've got access to the raw supplies. And the Chinese knew this more than ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and moved. And you know. Okay. That's, well, well, that's it, sort of where it's at. It, it is. It is where it's at. I, I, I thank, like, thanks for the numbers that you've given us. Um, but thanks. I just want to, again, just clarify um, precisely how you protect your position going forward. So well and good building this now. If competition comes in and, you you know, usurps you, you um, that's problematic. Yep. But you, you seem to have got both ends of the... Um, of the of, of the story kind of bolted down, so that's really good news. We should talk about vanadium though as well, okay? And then perhaps you know, just in terms of the general, general green thematic, I think you know, it'd be great to hear from Jeremy in terms of um, what, what, what's going on there because um, it's just it, it's it's the thematic that you latched onto early, and you're delivering on a number of your projects. So I, I think it's important to understand what else you're doing. So on the lithium recovery project, you, you talked about um, the. the you know what's going on there. So, can you give us an update there on the, on the say the PFS numbers? I saw some new numbers come out earlier. Uh, was it last week? Uh, the vanadium, or vanadium. so the vanadium had the PFS numbers. Yeah, yeah. Darren, do you want to run through your your PFS numbers? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we put out the results about a week ago uh, for the PFS. So, really happy to get that uh, major milestone behind us. And got a pretty good, solid set of numbers, um, pretty well in align with the earlier work we'd, we'd uh, completed on the project. So talking, uh, we've confirmed lowest quartile operating cost of $4.25 a pound, which, um, you know, it's very important when you're in the vanadium uh, industry, you want to be uh, lowest quartile OPEX. So really happy to confirm that number. Um, CapEx was up just a little bit from the from the uh, scoping study, but at 184 million US dollars, so uh, very uh, very achievable. Uh, pre-tax sort of NPV number about uh, US 230 million dollars, and IRR about 31 percent. So a good good set of project numbers, and um, yeah, really happy with where that project's sitting. I mean to be producing sort of zero carbon or negative carbon, high purity, um, you know, vanadium inside the EU and to be lowest quartile, um, pretty nice position to be in. Again, so just <clears throat> give us the MPV 230s is a nice number. That's based on obviously what you know today, but what's, what's the scale of the opportunity? We talked about scaling of the lithium battery um, projects. What's the potential here, just in, in terms of helping me with some of the numbers to kind of project forward? Yeah, so the current uh, supply agreement we've got with our partners, Critical Metals and SSAB, who are the suppliers of the slag, is for a 10-year operation um, and producing about 13.5 million pounds per annum of V2O5. So that's the current uh, arrangements. Um, we're also looking at other opportunities um, to uh, look for scale and to look for other opportunities around the world to deploy this technology. And uh, we're, that's a work in progress. Right, so PFS is, I mean, to what level? Again, people come on here and go, oh, we've done a PA to PFS level, we've done PFS to DFS level. What, you know, what's the reality of this in terms of how quickly this thing moves forward, Darren? 
Yeah, well, we're moving it forward uh, very uh, quickly, but robustly and doing it properly. Uh, so the numbers at the moment are minus 20 plus 25% uh, for PFS level. Uh, we've been working with Hatch on the uh, study. So we've had a very good international engineering firm working with us on the project and feel very comfortable. In fact, um, you know, I, I, this this easily is a PFS level uh, study. In fact, beyond it, in my my opinion. So we're feeling very comfortable with the numbers. Okay. Uh, in terms of moving forward, DFS by the end of June next year, so June 23rd. Okay, so pretty rapid stuff. Pretty rapid stuff. So, um, I mean, probably probably one f- um, for you, Chris, which is the 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 number I mentioned there was one hundred what eighty four million at the appropriate time. So, yeah, look, it's we're earning into fifty percent in an incorporated joint venture. So, we'll have a look at the funding solution for the incorporated joint venture, uh, and so I think you know how we've typically looked. To, to projects like this, you know, as, as Darren alluded to, you would be producing a critical battery um, material. So vanadium pentoxide, which is going into nickel vanadium manganese cathode batteries, lithium vanadium cathode batteries. It can go into uh, vanadium redox flow batteries in the electrolyte solutions. So we're producing very, very high spec material and it's cycle testing very well uh, in the evaluations that are being undertaken at the moment with a with a cell maker. So we've got, you know, in terms of confidence of selling it, it's it's like I said, marketing risk minimal, price risk we're expecting to get and high purity vanadium producers get a couple of dollar a pound premium over the current prevailing market price because 80 odd percent of the world's vanadium goes into steel. This is this is too good to put into steel. It'd be like putting Voss water on your flower bed. Um, and so, you know, the we expect to be able to attract significant interest from green pools of capital, be they equity or debt. In fact, the uh, Finnish sovereign has. Uh, you know, indicated that they would like to put their shoulder to the wheel with respect to helping us get the carbon sequestration leg of the flow sheet financed. Um, you know, so I, I would, uh, you know, for, for life of mine offtakes, um, if you have a look at what we did to develop Mount Marion uh, into the world's second largest hard rock source of lithium production, you know, we had take or pay off takes. You had build own operate agreements to, to take some of the financing load off. You had partial sell downs of equity. I think we've got a we've got a reasonably open book. I mean, the only difference between this project and the battery recycling is for the battery recycling, you'll be absolute lowest cost nickel slash cobalt producer. And the vanadium, you're absolutely in the lowest quartile costs. Not as e- easily to scale up, but that's not to say that we haven't got potential to increase the volumes. And as Darren said, look to deploy that into other locations in the world. Certainly Scandinavia doesn't have a mortgage on those types of uh, those types of byproducts that are being stockpiled. 
Okay, but let me just, so, just a project developer though, okay? You've got multiple projects. We're talking about two today. You've got another two um, sitting behind this, you know, f- f- following up. How do you <clears throat> protect your shareholders? How, do you need to silo these projects? You get 180 plus uh, raise requirement on this project. You're going to have to raise some money on the battery recycling project. So how do you protect your shareholders um, by siloing these projects and how do they also at the same time benefit from the multitude of these um, projects which you've got going forward? Yeah. Because sure. you know, if, if one falls over, it may affect the ability of another to perform. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's been part of our strategy where they are, they are all in independent special purpose vehicles. Uh, we've always developed our projects in that manner. We've, uh, you know, in the last five or six years, we've we've taken a conscious strategy to de-risk a lot of the projects by bringing in very large partners to shoulder some of the operating and financial risks, and that that's worked well. And you do you do prevent that domino effect that you just alluded to. But in terms of how we allocate capital, we're we're all limited by time on Earth, Matt. And history would go to show that, you know, we're trying to get the highest return in the shortest period of time, trying to get the highest PE uh, and therefore return on invested capital and payback time becomes some of the more uh, salient metrics that we look at with in terms of, and the ability to scale up uh, or replicate, um, definitely. So they're all capable of being independently financed um, without dilution to the head company. And so it's really, you know, how uh, in terms of the value, like I said, it's hard to go away from projects that are at the bottom end of the cost curve, assuming that, you know, demo plant operates exactly the way that the pilot did and that we end up with class three results like we did the class four. On that basis, it should have priority. It's closest to cash flow and has the highest return on invested capital, right? Everything from that point out to the right, to the, the their more upstream, more carbon uh, intensive uh, projects, um, then, you know, we, we're, we, we're totally flexible. I mean, the shareholders ultimately own each of those projects. Now, you know, we can have a look at doing demergers where we can spin them out as separate vehicles, return shares back to shareholders, invite them to participate in new equity raises, and they can have the decision whether they want to keep that same level of exposure in the business and reinvest or that they can take that opportunity and exit that business. So ultimately, we deem that they are worth taking from A to B. But once they go into the FID, certainly the the capital uh, requirements, the structure, uh, the people uh, become front of mind in our consideration um, about how they get bought into operation. See, it's quite an interesting dynamic here, and it's interesting for people to try to understand. You've got a public company with some special purpose vehicles, which at some point will get into production. There'll be commercial entities in their own right, self-sustaining it, et cetera. Is your reporting as a public company hampered by the fact that you've got a JV partner who may not necessarily want a lot of the information coming out of those companies? Um, you know, so how, how, do, how, do you, how do you manage that? Well, you manage that in the joint venture contract and your commercial agreements up front. 
you know, something that Jeremy raised today when him and I were having a discussion, you know, the issue of control. Once you've signed the agreements, um, the controls that you agreed to are the controls that you've got. So the commercial team and the legal teams uh, and, and the project sponsors, we do invest quite a lot of time. And, you know, you, you see from when we signed that MOU with SMS to the, the duration of time to concluding a joint venture agreement. You know, we, there, there are, there are, there's a number of protections in there. Um, and one of the ones that's probably not that well noticed is that, you know, if we're presented with an opportunity to deploy a lithium battery plant, and I quite haven't got my financing ducks lined up and SMS want to proceed, I've got an 18-month option to buy back in on the same terms, right? So, so I, I get what you're saying in terms of releasing public data, but, you know, we're listed on a stock exchange. They appreciate and understand what our obligations are with respect of that. Um, we each bring, you know, we bought the flow sheet, the IP and, and, and the knowledge and we're transferring it to them. They build the engineering, you know, they bring the engineering skills and the ability to commercialise, to, to turn them into commercial reality. And in any good, you know, long-term business, I mean, we have, we have had a number of joint ventures where despite what the equity percentages are, there has to be, uh, you know, absolute, agreement it has to be consensus on material uh matters right so you should be able to each state your case and and come up with a happy medium you know yeah and the reason i ask chris is because you know we've seen it with certainly with royalty companies where they've got royalties on public companies and also private private assets too you know where the, the private entity isn't necessarily well doesn't absolutely doesn't have to report on on numbers on the frequency that public companies do so at some point when these special purpose vehicles are either spun out they may be listed but they may remain remain private the 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 quality or quantity or amount of information that comes back through you as the public company, you know, may, may be restricted in some way. And is that, so does that affect your decision-making as to the best way to um, deal with that special, special purpose vehicle or joint venture? Yeah, look, I think um, to, to the extent that, you know, a lot of ours are genuinely 50-50, then, you know, you don't consolidate the cash flows, but you will report the equity share as a note in your financial statement. So despite us at Mount Marion not bringing in, uh, not consolidating, um, you know, we did have, we did state the, the SPV's actual financial performance, statement of financial performance and statement of financial position so that people can draw um, an analogy on, or, you know, they, they, they need the information. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, long way off. Lots of decisions to be made between now and then. Can, can I just, Jeremy, I just want to talk to you. you. You kind of sort of managing this sort of AIM process. I'm intrigued by the narrative out there, okay? Because there's a lot of chat around ESG, green initiatives, green investing, all of that. You know, I want to know how much of it is chatter, you know, just we've got a tick box exercise, and how much is reality in terms of when you were talking to I, I guess lots of funds institutions in London 
What were they saying to you? Because they, they must be viewing you as a kind of green initiative at the very least. What, what, were, the, what were the conversations? What were the demands? Yeah, look, I think some of those discussions, you know, all those institutions and funds and brokers that we speak to are, are, are pretty well aware of greenwashing and chatter and slick, you know, marketing lexicons versus, you know, what's the real deal. So, you know, the fact that we've got a sponsoring broker that's supporting us into a, you know, an AIM listing suggests that they probably think this is the real deal as well. But, you know, you could have an exploration company with a with an aspiration to make unobtainium and it's going to go into this UBIT green application. And, and we too have the same aspirations for lithium and nickel and cobalt, et cetera. But there's another string to the bow in that, you know, that's one aspect. The second aspect is that, you know, the, the real side of the sustainability, the core business that we have is sequestering carbon and, and recycling finite materials and stopping hazardous stuff going into landfill. So it's, a, it's another rung of an aspiration just to make a, an old mineral, which I can now call a green mineral. So, you know, in essence, we're complementing mining with those two projects in Europe. And that's a good thing because mining's not going to disappear anytime soon if we want the volumes of, of materials that we need for these vehicles. But it is a different take on mining because we're not digging the traditional hole. And, you know, that's pretty topical at the moment. There's, you know, quite a few people questioning how green our extraction processes are. And I say our, I don't mean near metals, I mean collectively, how, how we get this stuff to make the vehicles. So, you know, to answer your question, I think, it's been supportive and that people recognise that we have gone a rung above an aspiration. It's it's sort of the real deal. That's my takeaway. But are these brokers, I know you, I think you're um, using, is it Sankos in, in London, um, are they more likely to push your product, because that's what it is to them, than the next guys because of the green components or is it just a case of where they can make a quick buck? I mean, what what is the mood? What is the narrative genuinely there? I don't think there's a single money manager who is interested in ESG of itself. I think they're all interested in a return on investment for their investors and related parties. But if you can add it and add another trick to your story in terms of the sustainability, they're genuinely very interested. We've chosen Sencos for the fact that they're very well versed in the subject matter. When we list as soon as we've got first revenues um, from green sources, we're looking to secure the green economy mark. So it's real, but, you know, the, the dizzy heights of ESG euphoria, I think, are dissipating a bit. I mean, there has to be an element of reality to all of this. And, you know, it, it just so happens that that is what we're doing, irrespective of what it sounds like in a narrative. Um, but certainly it's being embraced. That's, see, that's really, that's fascinating to me. Do, do you, are you saying it's dissipating because it was a fad or it's dissipating because it's a, it's a matter of course? Of course it should be in there. Um, or it's a point of differentiation if there's not much between you. Because I get the bottom line is you, you still need to make money. You still need to be a growth story. You still need to deliver on the fundamentals of running a business, you know, uh, project developer or, or otherwise. But is, is there a weariness to the ESG component? Well, look, not that I've seen. I, I don't, when I say dissipate, I think it's only dissipating because people, fund managers and brokers are trying to sift through reality. So short, sort the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. 
So, look, I think there's uh, still a, a massive appetite for what's real and translates into returns because ultimately that's never going to disappear. There's ESG funds and then there's funds who care about ESG and, and you might find their filters are identical. You know, some people would argue that all funds nowadays have to be ESG funds. They just might not put it in their title. Right. Okay. I tell you the interesting narrative, again, speaking to um, brokers, analysts and fund managers that we've heard, certainly coming out, out of um, London and, and North America, is that um, they are cognizant of the um, momentum stories of last year, the promote stories of last year, and they are looking for companies with solid fundamentals because it's at some point the promote component will fall over because the fundamentals aren't there and are recommending that people switch out of their um, promotes or at least start taking money off the table on those and put them into more fundamental stories. I guess a bit, you know, a bit, bit more like yours, where there's there's, there's some substance to it. It's it's in- interesting what's going on in the marketplace. They they should pin their ears back and have a look at near metals. There you go, uh, guys. No, appreciate your time today. Um, great update. Uh, nice to see things moving along. So again, Chris, leave us with those uh, timings on. Well, certainly when the, these two projects are going to be, you know, FID again. Yeah. So FID battery recycling March quarter twenty twenty two, vanadium recovery project December quarter twenty twenty two. Beautiful, guys. Appreciate your time today. Stay in touch. Let us know how you get on. Okay. Cheers, Thanks Matt. a lot. Keep safe. Cheers, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.